We are in a series at the moment, a fun, light summer series called A Roundtable on Suffering. Yeah, woo! We're having a good time. We're having a good time. And so how we've set this series up is it's set up like a roundtable, meaning that we're going to be hearing over the last two weeks and the next four, uh, all six New Testament epistle authors on the subject of suffering, kind of selecting a portion of what they wrote in the New Testament letters about what their take on the idea of human suffering is and trials and difficult things to get a holistic picture of what, how the Bible, especially the New Testament letters, address that topic. And why we picked this was there's mixed reviews on the topic of suffering. And sometimes the idea of suffering can actually be pitted against what is life-giving. And so scripture, if we really do our job right and we really get into it, always leads to life and freedom and wholeness and relationship. And suffering is one of those topics where it's tough to see that that's actually the point through it for obvious reasons. So today we get to look at the book of James. Now, I like James because he's kind of controversial and he's different than the other epistle writers in some big ways. And he's going to play the role of our tough love dad in our round table. He plays the role of the suck it up (laughs) kind of dad and he's kind of just not ashamed of it. He just sort of has that way about him. Uh, I think uh, something that it reminds me of, actually, Nate, since you're here, what is the line that you tell your son when he's in pain? Shout it out. Amen. Pain is just weakness leaving the body. Oh, man. That's what James would say. It's not in scripture, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the tone you get with James. I heard a story of Elijah, his son, actually telling another boy in the playground that, which is getting weird. But anyways... Uh, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Uh, James is not threatened by the idea of trials. In fact, he's really excited about them. He's strangely exuberant about the subject, and he almost welcomes it with joy. So we're going to read a portion here of James, uh, starting in chapter 1, verse 2. You can put that up there. We'll read this together. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that, you be, so that you may be mature and complete. Some translations use the word perfect there, actually. Not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and is unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade, even when they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us understand your word here today. We thank you that everything that you allowed to be passed on to us was on purpose. And so I pray that you would reveal to us 
by our great power, um, what it means, what these verses mean. Lead us into life, wholeness, freedom, relationship, awe of Jesus, all those things. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so James has an overarching goal for his whole book, actually, and particular in this passage. He has an overarching goal, and it's he hopes that we all become mature and fully grown in Christ. In other words, to use the, keep using the dad metaphor, he hopes we grow up. He hopes we don't stay babies, spiritual babies. He hopes we mature and, and become all that we're supposed to be. You can hear the parenting language in this. And so like any good classic, sort of classic father figure, there's this intention for uh, his children, this being, you know, his church, that he has, he has a desire for them that eclipses the prevention of pain. He's not so much thinking about them not being in pain and suffering. He's thinking more about how's this going, what is this going to do in you? How's this going to mature you? How's this going to make you into who I know you're supposed to be? Because the fact is that trials of any kind, they shape us. They just do. Trials more than anything else, probably. If I was to ask you, what, like, think about who you are. And if you were to try to, if you had to tell me five stories that told me what made you who you are, there's a good chance that a majority of them are going to be tough things. They're going to be trials. They're going to be things you've overcome or worked through or difficult things that have substantial, meaty trials. So we know that trials shape us. And James, what he's doing is he's is using that thing that we all kind of intuitively know that when we go through hard things in life, it really does make us who we are. He's taking that idea and applying it to our spiritual life. He's applying it to us growing into who God's called us to be and who he's made us to be. So, uh, here's where the first sort of rub comes in my heart, is that maybe you're like me, and growing in the natural, let's call it, growing, growing up in the more natural sense of just, you know, being a kid and then an adolescent and then an adult, there's those trials that come, and I'm a little bit more, I welcome them more easily, because they just feel natural, and you, you, you can kind of just... As you grow up, it feels normal to experience trials and sort of overcome them. And uh, you can try harder, you learn new lessons, you get better at things, and it's all kind of very natural. But maybe you're like me. When we talk about growing up spiritually, there's a bit more resistance to that in my heart. And it isn't quite so intuitive to me. And I have to stop and think about it. Mostly because when we're growing up spiritually, at least I find this personally, that what we're working through is deep heart issues. Like we're working through stuff that's at the core of who we are. And it's not just like light lessons. It's not just about getting better at stuff. It confronts a really deep part of you when you begin to grow up in the faith. And it's painful and substantial and deep and you're learning about, I don't know, very things at the core of who you are. Let's just say it that way. So, uh, if growing up in the natural shapes you into, let's call it a responsible adult who's well-adjusted, financially stable, can hold down a job, has friends, you know, like that's kind of the, you know, the, the bullseye. What's the, what's the bullseye for growing up spiritually? What are we actually working towards? What does that look like? 
we're going to use Romans, uh, verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 29. It says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, a little confusing if you've never heard that verse before. Here's what it means. Jesus paved the way for us so that we could become like him. So that we could be conformed into his image. Actually, he was hoping that he would be what's known as the firstborn of a new creation. And so, we're not equal with Jesus, but in a certain sense, he wants us to be his equals. He wants us to be brothers and sisters along with him, sitting at his father's feet. And so he wants us to become like him. So when we talk about growing up spiritually, the bullseye is to become like Christ. And it's very important that we know what the purpose of all that is. It's not just becoming a self-actualized adult that has less issues. It's there's, actually, there's a bullseye that's been set in stone for us that looks like Christ. It looks like him. We, we become more like him in this. Now, James gives a very simple summation of how this happens. And it's awkwardly simple. It's annoyingly simple. Put verse 2 up there for me again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, or the ESV says perfect, not lacking anything. Okay, James uses the word perfect or mature or complete a lot, more than any other New Testament writer, and it's awkward. We don't really know what to do with the word perfect. When we think of the word perfect, I just think of flawlessness, like James wants us to be flawless. It's like, okay, it's a little bit, the bar's a little too high. It's like, is that, is that what it means? You want me to be flawless? Okay, tiny little Greek lesson. The word that they get, the word that's used for perfect is this, it has the same root of the word that we use for, that we, of where we get the word purpose from, okay? So, it's called telos. It's, uh, if you've heard of teleology, it's the study of, you know, purpose. What are we here for? So, to be perfect is when a person or a thing fulfills its purpose. It's Perfection is describing persons and things that fulfill their reason for existence, okay? So when James is saying be perfect, he's saying fulfill the reason you were made. Become complete, become whole, become who you were made to be from the very beginning. That's what perfection means, just so you know. So here's the logic of how this works and stay with me for a second. The reason for our existence is to be in relationship with God and to be his image bearers. Now, we image who we trust the most. We reflect who we trust the most. We become an image of who we trust most. The funny, it's kind of a funny idea, but we're actually, we've talked about this before. Uh, when God made us, he, ma he made us idols. And all an idol is, is just a reflection of God. So we're actually all his idols. That's why he doesn't want us to make any, because God's like, I made all those already. They're called people. And they have the ability to reflect my image. That's a pretty high calling, pretty amazing. But remember, the goal is to be an idol, not a God. So if, you're, if we're idols, we need to reflect the actual God, the real God, represent the real God, right? And that means we have to trust him and he has to remain God. 
Now, Adam and Eve didn't do that. What they did is they decided to not trust him, right? Now, who are they imaging? Well, it's not him because they don't trust him most. They trust themselves most. And they then became little gods, little unqualified gods that became instantly ashamed and scared when they realized what happened. But nonetheless, they got what the serpent actually promised them. You can be like God, right? You take it. You grab hold of it. You be God. You trust you. Like God's keeping secrets from you. You should become like God. So they have then forsook their role as image bearers because they stopped trusting him. Now, we have a word for trust in God, and it's called faith. <laughs> that's the word. That's just basically what it means. So how do we become perfect again? How do we become whole again? How do we become image bearers again? Well, we have to trust God again wholeheartedly. And trials are where faith and trust is needed most. And if we let perseverance in faith, in trust, finish its work, I love that term, we're then shaped again into trusting image bearers. That's why James is like, hey, Stick with this whole faith and trust thing because as you do, as you work out that trust, especially in trial, as you work that out, you're actually being conformed into the image of Christ again. You're being conformed into the image you were made to be. So James is very stoked on the idea that we would have an opportunity to become conformed into our original design again. It's very deep. It's very profound. Now, what I find so interesting, this is probably one of the most striking things that Jesus said, in my opinion. He said a lot of striking things. But one of them that stands out for me, as it says in Luke 18, I'll just read it out. When the Son of Man comes, meaning when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on earth? Question mark. That's what he's looking for. And it kind of makes sense. Because if faith is the thing that restores us to be image bearers, then it would make sense that as he comes back, he would go, who has faith in me? Who's, who's trusted me? Who's become conformed to my image? Where's, the, where's faith? Where is it? Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? It's awkwardly narrow and specific that faith is actually what completes us somehow. So this is where things get interesting to me in particular when it comes to James. Is that, okay, so we're tracking. We have a nice idea that we should just try really hard to have faith in hard times. But he doesn't stop there. So maybe you're all in agreement thus far going, I get it, I should really try to have faith because that seems like a good reason to be an image bearer. But when push comes to shove, like give me something more practical. Like what do I actually do? Am I just squinting? Am I just trying? Like what do you mean persevere in trial? And James gets real concrete on what this actually looks like. And this, is, this gets interesting. Put verse 5 up there for me. This is his big advice to you, to us, in the midst of trial and persevering in faith. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So James urges his readers, in the midst of trial, 
to honestly assess one inward resource and its wisdom of all things. That caught me off guard a little bit. And if you don't have it, it's all good. James is like, hey, if you don't have wisdom, if you aren't wise, ask for it and it will be provided abundantly to you. And I'm like, still not helping. Why do I need wisdom? Why, why do I need wisdom? What's the, what's the point of wisdom in a trial? Like, when I'm in a trial, I want more faith. I want more positive feelings. I want more evidence. I want more miracles. Aren't miracles great? Like in the midst of trial, I'm praying for a whole bunch of different things besides wisdom. I don't know about you, but why wisdom? It seems so random. Now I want better feelings. I don't want to be wise. What does wise matter? Okay, so here's why it matters. Here's why it matters to James. And this is, this is his counsel to us. This is where it gets really concrete. And stay with me again, because it's a little bit, there's, I want you to understand this. Everyone who has faith, maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you believe in Jesus. You believe in him. You have faith in him. You trust him, okay? Everybody who has faith must decide how to live out those beliefs, right? Like it's, it's one thing to say you believe, and then you, you'd think it would kind of lead to stuff. It would lead to different behaviors, it would lead to operating out of that trust. It would dramatically dictate the way in which you lived, the decisions you made, what you did or didn't do. Because wisdom, stay with me, wisdom is when you actually live out what you believe in. Like wisdom is when you, when you know what's most true and good and what, what, what deserves the most faith and trust, let's say the way of Jesus, you, we know that, okay, great. Now wisdom goes, I know what's right and I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to follow it. I'm going to obey it. It's going to matter in everyday life. Uh, we, we reserve the word wisdom, I think. I think we reserve the word wisdom, not just for smart people. Like if we say someone is wise, that's different than just saying someone is smart or knowledgeable. If we say someone is wise, it means they've lived the knowledge they know. Is, it not, is that not true? Like Gandalf's wise. Because he's walked around Middle Earth for 300 lives of men, roughly. And um, he's just been there and done that. And he's stayed faithful. Sorry, I should stop. I can tell like I'm preaching about Gandalf. He's not the savior. But... Like, we call people wise who have embodied knowledge. They've experienced knowledge. What they've known to be true and good has been lived out in their lives. And we go, oh, it's a wise person. And then when they offer you wisdom, it's like from a story, usually. It's like not from a textbook. It's like, oh, well, it's like they told you a story about when that mattered and it was true. And you're like, that's a wise person. So this is what James is imploring us to have in the midst of a trial. Why? Okay. For salvation to be complete in James's view, it means it must affect the whole person. We must have a total devotion to God. And this means that our desires and our behaviors are unified with what we believe the most. They're not divided. Like, what you, what you know to be true is reflected in your behavior. Now you're saved because you've been made whole and there aren't two parts of you. 
There aren't, it isn't the part of you that like knows that that's right, but then when push comes to shove, I kind of just do whatever I want. James is very clear. He's like, well, what did he say? That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. It's really harsh. Hey, if you're divided and you have, you're double-minded, if you don't have wisdom, if those two things aren't reconciled in your world, don't expect to receive anything from God. You're unstable. You don't, like James would say, you aren't saved yet. Now, this is why people have struggled with James historically. In fact, Martin Luther, who was very committed to the idea that we don't earn our salvation in the Reformation, that was a big deal. Super glad he did that. Um, we don't earn our salvation. And so much so that Martin Luther was really frustrated with James. And he, he's quoted as wishing that James wasn't in the New Testament because James is really comfortable with the idea that your behaviors super matter. Now, James isn't saying we earn our salvation. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that if you're saved, if you're totally devoted to God, you will be wise. And what wisdom means is that what you believe most automatically affects your behaviors and what you do. So, uh, I'll put up a, 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 just, a, just a quick quote from, a, from, a, from a, a commentary so you don't think I'm totally making this up. But this is where my study led me. Listen to this. Faith is a means by which we become open to the instructive wisdom of God. Okay, that's interesting. Faith is not just crossing your fingers and squinting and hoping things work out. That's a very shallow understanding of faith. It's beautiful in its own way, but it's not quite what James is talking about here. James is saying, oh, you got faith? Great. Here's what that's going to do. It's going to allow the instructive, beautiful, perfect law and wisdom of God to be manifested in your life. You're going to be open to instruction. Instructions. What a terrible word. Instructions in the midst of pain and trial. That is the... That, <laughs> you want to annoy somebody? Give them instructions when they're in pain. <laughs> right? Like, could you imagine if someone's tumbling down the ski hill, you know, tumbling down the ski hill and uh, just, just bailing, 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 and you ride by on your snowboard and go, keep more weight on your front foot, <laughs> right? That's a little mean. Also, if you kept more weight on your front foot, you wouldn't tumble down the mountain. So who's loving? I mean, this is James. He's just comfortable with that. He's comfortable with going, all right, you're in a trial. Like, flop, 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 flop. Keep your weight on your front foot. And in that moment, you're going, I want to be held, and I want my money back from this $200 Whistler, you know, ticket. So what I signed up for. And James is like, no, 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 I want you to experience this. I want you to experience this. Keep your weight on your front foot. Listen to my instruction. Have faith that when you keep your weight on your front foot, you stop tumbling down the mountain. So, uh, this is important to me, and especially when we're talking about a suffering series, okay? Because this twigs things in people for good reason. And in the midst of trial as Christians, we don't just say, hang in there. 
okay? Our faith is more deep and robust than that. Now, hang in there is a perfectly true and beautiful thing to say, especially because we know Jesus is coming back and he's gonna make it all new. That's not a wrong thing to say. Like, yeah, hang in there. That's, 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 like, that's not wrong to say. And if you've told somebody that, that's not bad. But this passage is going some deeper levels. It's going to some deeper levels. And it's saying, in the midst of a trial, your way out, keeping your weight on your front foot, your way out is actually obeying God's instructions. And there's something to do there. There isn't just, we're not just retreating and crossing our fingers and hoping for something that is, there's actual things to do and our faith opens up paths of real freedom that when we walk in the instruction of God, it leads us out into wholeness and freedom and newness. And at the same time, it conforms us into his image because now we know that the thing worked because we did it when it was hard and you're being conformed into a robust, real image of God that doesn't just think something, it knows something and it's becoming wise in its instruction. It's way more robust than crossing your fingers. Now, forgive me, I have a small diatribe to say about modern worship songs. <laughs> so I, I love worship and I listen to all of them in the car because they're all beautiful in their own way. But um, I have a small bone to pick with a trend. This is not every song, okay? It's not every song. But there's a trend right now in modern worship that is being written. And a lot of them talk about... <laughs> Uh, just hang in there. God's just around the next corner. Uh, keep believing and God's gonna come through for you. If you're still in pain, God's not finished yet and hang on for your miracle. Okay, you're getting the theme. That's true. God still intervenes in our lives in miraculous ways. And sometimes there is a miracle on the horizon. We've had those stories and praise God. Okay, so not wrong, not wrong. They're just baby songs. <laughs> They're hoping that dad will rescue you. And he does, like he does. I'm so scared to be misunderstood. He does rescue us. And he also rides by and says, keep your weight on your, right, uh, on your front foot. He also goes, okay, you can, <laughs> he also knows that the most important miracle is not just over the horizon, it already happened. The most important miracle is super true regardless of what's around the next bend. And that miracle is, Jesus has made a way for you to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live righteously and obey him. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to have faith that the way in which he lives works. And he empowers us to obey him and faith opens the door to the instructive wisdom of God and we take actual steps of faith, that's why we call it that, steps of faith that are, look like real things, not just hoping, and we hope. So this is, this is like, I don't like being ridden past on the mountain, you know, being, having instructions barked at me. And it, they're really helpful. And I think sometimes we talk about this stuff at church and it can feel that way, like a drive-by like drive advice. <laughs> I don't want it to feel that way. But when you're stuck in a trial, 
that has you like has a hold on you, like something like bitterness or something. I'm making something up, but like something like bitterness that's well deserved. Like you could really choose to be bitter about a thing, like a real trial. And then the instructive wisdom of God would come along, and like we talked about last week, uh, one of the instructions could be, "Hey, mercy." Hey, have mercy on the world around you. And you go, whoo, that's going to take faith. That's going to take a lot of faith to have mercy right now on them and them and them and them. <laughs> and yet, your heart, when it gets opened up to mercy, it's just an example, you'll have your own. When it gets opened up to mercy, you start to go, okay, so that took faith. But then mercy starts to work. And your heart starts to get soft. And relationships tend to become mended when we actually follow Jesus and obey him. His wisdom works. It's so much more profound than crossing your fingers and hoping. I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of what Peter says when he says God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Oh, there's a faith statement for you. God's divine power that's already accessible to you by the miracle that's already happened is enough for you to live a, a godly life. Okay. Okay, here's why I like this. This is such an empowering message. We don't just, <laughs> okay, so we do sit and wait in a certain sense. And in another sense, we're never stuck. You're never stuck in a trial. Because what James is saying here is that let, the per let your perseverance in faith, which looks like following God's wisdom, let that manifest itself in your life. Walk in that. Do something. Change. Grow. Uh, obey. You're never stuck. Now, things might not get fixed in the exact way that you hoped it would, but that's the miracle, is you're not a slave to your circumstances or to the world being fixed. God's able to transform you into his image without the world changing around you. He's able to turn you into an image-bearing person without any of the stuff that you obey. Like, it doesn't have to change the world around you. You're always able to be conformed into your original design. Always, always, always. Nothing can prevent that from happening. Nothing can prevent you from engaging with Christ and his word and what he said to do and in relationship with him. No trial, no suffering can separate you. It's super empowering. Even the deepest of trials, probably most in those, help you become like him, which is the whole point, which is the whole point. You're saved. You're free. Nothing can stop it. We're never stuck. So there's a promise at the end of all of this tough love dad talk. And uh, it's verse 12. You can put that up there. Blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The idea here is that blessing comes to those who endure, right? And so we know this instinctively in life, even if we're bad at it, we know that if we finish the bachelor's degree, it'll be a good thing and I'll get a better job. You know, like we know that, whatever your version of that is. If I listen to my boss's advice, even though he's a jerk, I will 
it'll still get me ahead in life and it'll help me with my laziness. And like, we know that. Even if I go to the gym, I will be in better shape. Like, we, we know these things. How much more should we obey and do and continue to persevere in faith when what's at stake is our soul, our heart, our Hebrew word is nefesh comes to mind. It's like your neck. It's the thing that, it's where all of your life, it, it's like who you are. How much more should we be persevering in those things? Because we know that, that, that when we persevere in life through hard things and the natural stuff, it winds up with being well-adjusted, financially stable people or something. How much more that when we persevere in faith and in trial, it transforms us into something far more substantial and lasting than being a well-adjusted, financially stable person or whatever. It conforms us into, into an eternal image-bearing son and daughter of God that's welcomed home alongside Jesus. Uh, another verse that comes to mind is, is Revelation 3. Uh, put that up. I love this verse. To the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres in faith, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne. It's Jesus speaking in the first person. I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus, why we so adore and respect and love him is that in the darkest and most heinous of trials and sufferings, he was wise he was wise. And he says, I know who my father is and I'm going to let it dictate my behavior. And it took him to a cross. It took him to a cross. And so in the same way, he's saying, hey, overcome, persevere in faith, believe like I did. And when you believe in the most logical person to believe in, called the creator of heaven and earth, he's good, and he, lead, he always gives life. He always leads us into wholeness and freedom in life. When you trust him, it will lead to a certain kind of death, but there's a resurrection at the end. Overcome that with me. Believe like I did with me. Become like me. Image me. Because there's a promise at the end that you'll be blessed, and it's called a crown of life, for goodness sake, and it's eternal. And so there's this beautiful invitation that we have in trial to go in those moments are when this gets tested in the biggest way. Going, wow, when I'm tested and when I, I have something that I know to believe to be true that God's good and he's up there and he loves me or something. But in trial, I mostly just wallow or get bitter or defend myself or then there's a disunity there's a disunity. There's a lack of perfection in big quotes. There's a lack of perfection that exists in us yet where we have yet to become image bearers that have, don't have a disconnect between what we believe to be true and how we live. And God is trying to help us. There's always a way out to do that. One last thing and then we'll conclude. If you can put verse 12 up there for me again, Bea. Um, what I love about uh, just verse 12, it should be the second last one. It says at the end of this that the crown of life is promised to those who love him. And I think this is a really special place to end because I, um, 
what James is trying to help us see is that at the end of the day, what matters most is the ultimate affection of our heart, the ultimate love of our heart. And what persevering in trials does is it deepens our affection and love for Jesus. And this is where discipleship just becomes a big deal to me because uh, in discipleship, what we're always talking about is this. We're talking about your primary affection. Who do you trust most? Who are you imaging? Who do you love? Who do you trust? That's behind every discipleship-oriented question, or should be. Where's your affection primarily? And what James is coming along and saying is going, okay, I'm going to say some hard stuff and I'm going to give you some instructions in the midst of your wrestle in that. And James would be the kind of person in his discipleship that comes along and goes in a discipleship moment and says, uh, hey, uh, it seems like you have an idol in your life. Hey, it seems like there's something that's stealing your love away. Hey, it seems like there's something that ca that's causing you to be double-minded, that's causing you to not act on what you believe. There's an idol in your life. What, you, what are you loving more than him? Why is, why is whom you claim to love most not, not showing itself in your behavior? That's a lot of discipleship. And if you've ever been given an observation like that in a discipleship context, you're furious for a second, and then you realize how grateful you are for someone to actually make a comment on your heart like to, 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 to wonder about where your heart is at. James is writing, by the way, to a group of diaspora Christians who have just experienced a lot of persecution in Jerusalem. And what they've done is as, as they've left the Jerusalem church due to scattering, you know, the stoning of Stephen and all those things, there was a scattering in the church. And he's writing to them because he's hearing word that what they're doing now doesn't reflect what he knows they believe in their hearts. What they're doing, they're obeying the way the world works and they're not reflecting it anymore. And he's going, guys, maintain becoming disciples. Maintain it. Be wise. Like, guys, have you ever had someone come to you and say, like, hey, it seems like relational, sexual fulfillment is the most important thing in your life. I'm noticing that in you. Is that true? Have you ever had someone say something like that to you in a discipleship context? You go, oh man, what's being talked about is like what my heart loves the most and where I'm finding hope and freedom. And James would come along and say, church, stay becoming disciples. Stay maintaining, persevering in faith as a community. Keep pointing out in each other when what you believe isn't lining up with your action. Stay close enough to each other where someone might even notice when that's not true. Because God's wisdom is what will get you out of trial. God's wisdom is what brings life to the full. God's wisdom and his, 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 when he leads you out of suffering through the power of his Holy Spirit by your obedience to his word because you love him, that is where life and freedom and wholeness is found. And he wants that so badly for his church. And I want it really badly for ours too. And it's why we care so much about being in close enough relationship where that could actually become possible. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up. I'd like to pray for us in this. Father, I ask that you would teach us, that you would give us wisdom. That, Lord, in trial, when the last thing we want to hear is something to do, <laughs> the last thing we want to hear is, is instructions. God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit now, you give us faith 
to believe that everything you would say and everything that you would command us to do leads to life. It leads to a crown of life, both in this life and in the life to come. Give us faith to be open to your instruction. Lord, I thank you that we're never stuck and that there's always something that we can do to be further conformed into your image. There's always something we can obey. You're always right there helping us become more like you. You're always right there being the, being the reason, being the result, being the, so present in our obedience. So Father, I pray for my friends right now in the midst of whatever trial's going on that you give us the faith to obey you and walk with you and be close to you and be like you. I'm just gonna give just 30 seconds right now. Um, and I'm just gonna ask the Holy Spirit a question and let him speak to each one of you. Uh, Father, Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would reveal an area in our life where there's a trial or a disconnect or something that doesn't make sense. Something that we long to be different. Right now, I pray that in your kindness, you would give us faith to receive instruction from your word. That you'd give us something to do, a, a step of faith, a step of faith that leads us out. Speak to us now. Lord, thank you for never leaving us alone, never leaving us stuck. I thank you that your gospel and the way you've called us to do, even when it hurts and even when it doesn't make sense, that you've promised that your way is a resurrection kind of life. So right now, give myself and my friends faith here to see the resurrection life that's in you. And whatever that instruction was, whatever that situation was, we trust you to lead us out of it. We trust you and we praise you as we, as we climb with you out of these valleys. Thank you for not leaving us behind. Thank you for not making this so passive. Thank you that our faith is so connected to the very fiber of who we are. There's nothing shallow about what you've called us into, nothing superficial, nothing only feelings-based. It's all real and deep and affects the core of our being. We thank you for not leaving that piece of us behind. Bring us along with you in this resurrection path, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand and respond and worship together? Thank you.